Good morning. So uh, last Wednesday, this is February 8th, a group of college students gathered in their school's auditorium for a 10 a.m. chapel service. Now this is a Christian college, so it, the chapel was mandatory. You can imagine how enthusiastically said students shuffled in to check chapel off of their to-do list for the week. Uh, did anyone here have it mandatory chapel services growing up? Be honest, all right. Yeah, I did too, and I'll be honest, I don't remember them very well. But last reason, for, uh, last Wednesday, for a reason that nobody really understands, when the choir stood to sing the closing song for this chapel service, at which time the students would normally head off to their classes, for some reason the students decided to stay and to keep worshiping by choice. This totally spontaneous, unplanned, extended time of worship quickly grew to include people from other schools and universities, and even from other states, as the word began to get out. What began as a mandatory chapel service at Asbury University in Kentucky is now being called by some the Asbury Revival of 2023, because for the last 10 plus days, the 1,500 seat auditorium has been standing room only around the clock with people worshiping, reading scripture, praying, enjoying the presence of God. You can Google it. Not now, please, but later if you're interested. And you know, as always, you can read a variety of takes on this. Um, and I recognize when people throw out the word revival, there's reason to maybe have some suspicion. But I have read a number of credible, thoughtful sources uh, describe what's happening at Asbury in overwhelmingly positive terms. For example, Tom McCall, who is a theology professor at the seminary across the street, so a credentialed, mature, adult Christian, uh, came to the chapel early on to kind of check it out and see what was happening. And this is what he wrote for Christianity Today, just on Friday. He said, as an analytic theologian, I'm, I'm weary of hype and very wary of manipulation. I come from a background in a particularly revivalist segment of the Methodist holiness tradition where I've seen efforts to manufacture revivals and movements of the spirit that were sometimes not only hollow but also harmful. I do not want anything to do with that, he said. And truth be told, what's happening at Asbury right now is nothing like that. There is no pressure or hype. There is no manipulation. There is no high-pitched emotional fervor. I cannot analyze or even adequately describe all that is happening, but there is no doubt in my mind, he says, that God is present and active. It's intriguing, at least, and it's very exciting, at most. I won't lie, I mapped Wilmore, Kentucky this week to see how long it would take me to get there. Six hours. But I also thought, wow, this is great timing because this is all happening in the week that leads up to Transfiguration Sunday, which is a day in the church when we acknowledge and celebrate the fact that yes, sometimes God chooses to give his people special experiences, special encounters of his presence and his glory. Now those of us hearing about it from the outside might be tempted towards skepticism or even envy. You know, why them and not us? That's a question we can't answer. But what we do know is that genuine mystical experiences, genuine encounters between God and his people, even if it's just a few people, they are always for the benefit of all of his people because of the fruit that they bear, the stories that we hear. 
This is the posture with which we approach the transfiguration. It was a special experience that didn't happen to us, but it did happen for us. This morning, we heard Matthew's account of the story, and Matthew wasn't there either. But Matthew, like us, is a beneficiary of the story. And he tells us that on a mountain 2,000 years ago, Jesus was transfigured. He was physically transformed in front of three of his disciples. We're told that his face shone like the sun, that his clothes became white as light, that Moses and Elijah also appeared along with a cloud and a heavenly voice. This is mysterious language, but it's the language of theophany, a tangible encounter with God. But before we get into too many of the details of the story, I want to zoom out and ask, why did this whole thing happen in the first place? Why did Jesus grant this special experience to his friends and by proxy to us? And this why is layered because it also helps us to understand why the church tells the story again on the last Sunday of Epiphany, the season that we've been in after Christmas, which is all about God's glory being revealed to the nations, right? About the good news that the light of the world is here and he's here for the whole world. That's the season we've been in. But next week is the start of Lent, which has a very different tone. We're about to enter a season of penitence, of repentance and self-examination as we journey with Jesus toward the cross. And the transfiguration is the hinge that links these two seasons. It helps us to see how they're connected. So here it is. Here is why Jesus blessed his friends with this special experience. And the truth is there are a lot of things uh, that could be said about it, but we only have 20 minutes, so I'm going to give you two reasons. The transfiguration validates Jesus' authority, and it illustrates our future. It validates his authority, and it illustrates our future. Let's discuss. First, Jesus' authority. The subtext for this is the previous chapter, when Jesus asks Peter, who do the crowds say that I am? And Peter answered, well, some say Elijah, or one of the prophets of old that has risen. In other words, in Jesus' earthly ministry, people are beginning to realize that he's special, but they aren't sure just how special he is. So now on the mountain, the transfigured Jesus appears beside Elijah, which clears up once and for all the question of Jesus' identity. He is not just one of the prophets of old. Now he also appears beside Moses, who represents the law of God and who prophesied at the end of his ministry that God would one day raise up a new prophet, the supreme prophet for God's people. And Moses said, it is to him you shall listen. Do you hear the connection? In case we miss it, Matthew makes it explicit in verse 5 of our reading this morning, which says, a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. In other words, Jesus is not just a good teacher who offers advice for us to then sift and appropriate in accordance with our own conscience. Jesus is the teacher. He is the ultimate expression of God's will for humanity. Moses and Elijah represent all of Israel's teaching, the law and the prophets, and here they both defer to Jesus. So for good Jews, the import would be You want to be a good Jew? Listen to Jesus. It's similar for us. Do you want to be a good person? Listen to Jesus. 
Do you want to be spiritually enlightened, socially conscious, a seeker of truth? Fill in the blank. If so, listen to Jesus. He is the one who can show you the way. But of course, we Christians believe that Jesus is more than a good teacher, more than even the best teacher, right? Christians believe that Jesus is God, God made flesh. It's a mystery, of course, that God could become a human being, but here he is. And Moses and Elijah attest to this uh, by their presence on the mountain in this way. You might remember that these two men had their own encounters with God on a mountain in their own stories but neither was able to fully see his face. Moses even prayed for this when he was on Mount Sinai, which we heard about earlier. He prayed, Lord, show me your glory. And at the time, God had to hide him in a rock and then walk behind him. But here, Moses' prayer is finally fully answered as he stands in the presence of Jesus. So it's appropriate that we read this story at the end of Epiphany because this is the literal mountaintop experience of the whole season. In the cloud, in the voice, in the dazzling face of Jesus, God manifests his glory to both the living and the dead. God's glory, it turns out, is located in Jesus. And God's authority is located in Jesus. It is to him that you shall listen. And this was actually very important for the disciples to understand because in the weeks and years ahead, Jesus was going to ask them to do some pretty hard things. He was going to lead them down a path that would make no sense to them. It's striking to me that in all three synoptics, all three accounts of this story, the transfiguration is followed immediately by Jesus climbing down from the mountain to cast out a demon. He goes from the heights of glory into the depths of human brokenness and bondage. Now, admittedly, casting out a demon is pretty cool. And, you know, his disciples, they were on board with that. They were, they were happy. But from there, Jesus would continue to go lower still in ways that his disciples did not approve of or understand when he would hand himself over to suffering and death. Now we begin to anticipate the downward direction of Lent. Jesus, who was revealed on the mountain as God's beloved son, leaves his position of privilege and descends to the very lowest place where he will suffer many things and be rejected and killed. And in doing this, Jesus flips the religious script of his day, right? His people had a long history of climbing mountains to look for God. They expected to encounter him in the high places, where it's closer to heaven. But here, Jesus shows us that God is actually in the business of going low. And he invites us to follow him. In other words, the same God who blesses us with heavenly experiences of closeness and comfort also calls us to conform to his suffering and death. The Christian story is inclusive of both. So we must learn how to embrace both. Just before his transfiguration, Jesus said as much to his disciples. This is Matthew 16, verse 24. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is what we will be doing over the next 40 days as we follow Jesus down the mountain and through the wilderness. 
we're apprenticing him in the way of the cross. It's a ministry of descent, of going low. And it is utterly nonsensical to us. The way of the cross made no sense to Jesus' first disciples, and it makes no sense to us today. And because of that, because it subverts our expectations and even our hope for what God will do for us, the way of the cross can be disorienting. So much so that when we're in it, we might begin to wonder, are we following the right guy? Is Jesus really who he said he is? If so, why does this feel so hard? Maybe you relate to that. Maybe as you have sought to follow Jesus, things haven't turned out in your life the way that you expected. Maybe he has asked something of you that feels unfair, something that has made you question whether or not you've heard him correctly. I think sometimes we unintentionally mischaracterize the Christian life when we talk all about the peace and the joy that's found in following Jesus. Because on the one hand, yes, of course, that's true. Jesus even said, I have come to give life to the full. But the reality is that in the short term, following Jesus means life might actually get harder. Because following Jesus means learning to walk the way of the cross, and that will never be comfortable. That's true regardless of who you are or where you're from or even what century you live in. We are all disoriented on this journey together, folks. And that's why we need to remember the transfiguration. It was a special experience given to three men, but it belongs to all of us because it teaches us to say, yes, Jesus is who he said he is. We saw his glory on the mountain. So he's the one we should listen to, even when we don't understand what he's doing or where this path is leading. Even when we don't like what he's asking of us, we can trust his authority. But there's more. The transfiguration reassures us about who Jesus is, but it also shows us what Jesus has in store. It validates his authority, but it also illustrates our future. So let's turn to that now. Look at verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. That seems like a very odd restriction, doesn't it? And imagine being Peter, James, or John and having to sit on this experience um, through so much without being able to share it with your friends. My poor husband, um, he finds out what I've gotten him for Christmas, not when I give it to him, but as soon as I obtain the gift, which is sometimes weeks beforehand, because I'm just so excited to share the good news that I end up leaking it, you know, leaking the information one way or another. But Jesus asked his friends not to do that, because this vision of Jesus was meant to be shared after his resurrection. Why? Because the glory glimpsed on the mountain could only be understood on the other side of the cross. It was the resurrection that would finally vindicate Jesus as the Son of Man and make sense of his nonsensical ministry. The way of the cross, as we've already said, is disorienting. And in the middle of it, it feels like death, because it is. But Jesus shows us that on the other side of death is resurrection. For him, but also for us. And that's the invitation. It's to lose your life in order to find it in him. 
This is where the Apostle Paul picks up the story in our Philippians reading, starting in verse 7. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And then in verse 10 he says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Friends, Jesus invites you to share in his suffering that you may also share in his glory. And in this way, we can think of his dazzling face on the mountain and imagine not only his radiance, but also ours. We can imagine what we will become when we are fully transformed into his likeness. Matthew says so much himself just four chapters earlier. He says that one day the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. The same words he uses of Jesus' transfigured glory he uses to describe us. He that has ears to hear, let him hear, Matthew says. But what does that mean for you today? It means that however low you feel right now, however hard your story hits rock bottom, it is not the end. And in fact, those places of shame or grief or self-sacrifice or whatever they are, those parts of your life that make you feel most disqualified or abandoned can become the very means by which you attain resurrection. I still remember the first time I read Philippians 3 as a teenager. I had just gone through some really hard experiences, and I was still in the middle of responding in some not-so-great ways. And I remember kind of feeling like I'd missed out on the whole Christian opportunity. That either I had passed over my chance to follow Jesus, or maybe that because of my failures, he had passed over me. And when I read these words of Paul, I remember being so surprised and thinking, maybe the darkness in my story could be reimagined. Maybe my losses, if they help me to know Christ, maybe even my losses can somehow be understood as gains. It's nonsensical, isn't it? And it doesn't flatten out our painful experiences, but it does repurpose them. It does turn our shame into glory. That's the journey we're on. As we put our faith in Christ, as we follow him to whatever end, we are being transformed, transfigured to shine as he does. It won't be complete until we see him, but it has already begun. Even now, as you carry your cross, as you wander in what feels like the way of death, Jesus is manifesting his life in you. I see it. From my limited vantage point, I see what he is doing in you and in me by his grace. So be encouraged and be emboldened to say with Paul, as he does in verse 12 of his letter to the Philippians, and I'll close with this. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I've already made it my own, but one thing I do, 
Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.